It is my great joy to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we're going to look together this morning at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We're going to work through all of these images here in this portion of God's Word as we continue to consider what the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. And today we see that the first and the last lives and lives forevermore. I'm just going to read verse 9 and then pray for God's blessings on our study this morning. Please stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect Word of our Sovereign God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we are gathered here today on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Those here this day who are united to Christ by faith, share with John and all believers the tribulation, the kingdom, and the grace of patient endurance. Because we were, we are in Jesus. And Lord, I pray today very specifically that there would be more here today who are in Jesus when we leave than when we came. Save sinners by Your grace. May we look to Christ. May we believe. May we repent. And may we follow Him. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm not much of an art buff. But I know enough to know that art, even to me, communicates to us in a unique and often a powerful way. One of the things I do when I prepare sermons is I draw pictures. I would never allow other human beings to see those pictures, including Judy. But I do it because he helps me work it out and think it out. Drawings and arts, not just my doodling, but from those who can really do it, is often very powerful. It is evocative. It touches us and teaches us in unique ways. Now, I remember studying a little bit about Impressionism, Impressionistic painters. Now, let me go ahead and say, don't stand out in the hallway and start engaging me about Impressionistic painters. I'm from Alabama, and I'm about to tell you everything I know. I know no more. This is just for sermon illustration purposes. But, but I remember thinking about what I did learn about Impressionism. And that is, in the 19th century, Impressionistic painters violated all of the normal rules of painting. 
And they use colors in a different way. You would have colors side by side, not blended together. And these colors would create a texture. And impressionistic painters paint these scenes and are marked by lots of light and the way the light works with the colors and they imply movement, not a static picture. And the point of impressionistic painting is not details and clear lines. Traditional painting would have a focal object and then everything else would be a little bit blurry and less focal. That's not the way impressionistic painting works. Rather, the issue is the overall visual effect, not the details. Broken brush strokes would be used and colors would be side by side. They wouldn't be blended or shaded smoothly. And you're to look at the painting and get an overall impression. An impressionistic painter is not trying to communicate to you the details of what something looks like, but rather they're trying to communicate what something is like. There's a way it hits you that tells you, if it's done well, something about what the scene is like. That's very helpful as we think about what the book of Revelation is doing. What John provides us in this divinely given revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. Revelation is painting a picture. And the colors that Revelation is using are found in Old Testament events and in the rich imagery of the Old Testament and particularly the prophetic images in the Old Testament. So the colors being used are already in the Bible. But they aren't used in neat, tidy, chronological ways. They're put side by side. And a particular verse could be drawn lines to a variety of places in the Old Testament. There's a dominant place, but it's connected all over. And what this picture of Jesus is doing is it's trying to affect us at the level of thinking about what Jesus is like, not what He looks like. In other words, taking all of these images and putting them together and drawing a picture, we're not saying if you took a snapshot, if you could, that's what Jesus looks like. What we're saying is that these images tell you what He is like. And that all of the light and movement in the picture that's painted here has its meaning clarified in Jesus Christ. Revelation is this explosive, dynamic picture providing an overall visual effect of the glory, the majesty, and the sovereign power of Jesus the Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. Graham's Goldworthy writes about the book of Revelation. He's an Australian commentator and academic, and he says this, in Revelation, John paints a picture of Jesus. 
rich in Old Testament imagery, so it would be easily understood by simple and unlettered Christians. But what about the fact that the tendency to think today is that the book of Revelation can't be understood? It should be left in the hands of the academics. Or it should be avoided because no normal person can understand what's going on here. But there's a difference. Those folks may have been simpled and unlettered, but they were steeped in the Old Testament. They heard the stories again and again. And so when the image comes up, they're thinking about where that image appeared in redemptive history and is recorded for us in what we call the Old Testament. The reason Revelation seems so foreign to us and unable to understand is because we may be lettered and sophisticated, but we often don't know our Old Testament like that. In fact, we often approach our Bibles not to just simply know God, but to answer particular questions we have. And so we have a very functional approach to the Bible often. And so John brings up an image that's, oh yeah, I know why he's saying that. Jesus fulfills that. And we have a much harder time because we don't know the images in the way we should. But, we can all change that. We have access to the Word of God. If you can't read, get it on tape and listen to it. Have people read it to you. If you can read, listen to it and read it. What I want you to see is this is here so suffering people who aren't trapped in some academic ivory tower with all day to study, hear this and go, oh yes, there is hope in the midst of my suffering. There is hope in the midst of my difficulty. You see, all of the colors, the Old Testament imagery, all of the light, the truth of the Bible that's fixed here on Jesus, who is the truth, and all of the movement of redemptive history meets right here. And the point is to stun us. To stun us not with what Jesus looks like, but to stun us with who Jesus is. What He is like. John did not receive this revelation just purely on his own behalf. John represents here the churches. The seven churches. But the seven churches are representative of all churches. So John here is intimately connected with all churches. With the seven churches and with us. And the first thing I want us to see in the first three verses is John and us in Jesus. John and us in Jesus. Look with me at the first part of verse 9. I, John, your brother. 
and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now the first thing he does here is to say that we all share in some things. He says brother to indicate that he's talking to all of his Christian brothers. That's whether male or female. The brother image is because the brother would receive the inheritance and all of us receive the inheritance. It's another way to say my Christian family, my Christian brothers. And so he's talking to all believers, but he also says, and partner. It's the word from which we get the word koinonia, fellowship, probably best understood as co-sharers. Well, what do we share together? The first thing he says is the tribulation. In fact, he says there are three things we share together. There are two that are realities for all. And then there's one right response for all faithful Christians. We share the tribulation. Now, there's a problem with understanding this because some people get to the end of the Bible here and anytime they hear the word tribulation, they think about what will later be called the Great Tribulation. This is not talking about that period. We see that used in Revelation 7.14. But rather, tribulation here is referring to distresses that are common to the Christian. Common to all. See, the point is not even that he's using tribulation in the sense of somebody who faces some sword at their throat. And if you're not facing that, you don't face tribulation. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the world after the fall. And that's why he brings up the kingdom. The tribulation comes because now the world is at war. Now Christ has already won the war on the cross and resurrection and will consummate that victory in the coming days which Revelation tells us all about. But the world is at war. There is a parasitic kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness that wars against those who are part of the kingdom of God's Son and love, the kingdom of light. And because we live in a world marked by sin, our own even if we're forgiven of it, and the sin of rebellion against God, we all face the tribulation of living in this world. But the believer is a part of the kingdom. The kingdom. That goes back to the garden. God established a kingdom. Adam and Eve were to rule the world under His authority and take dominion over the world. They listened to another voice, a voice with a lisp in the garden. And they obeyed that voice. And there was the fall into sin. Then there was a battle raging. And in Genesis 3.15, God promised a seed born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He promised victory. And the Bible chases out that pathway. The battle of the kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the Messiah. The Savior. The Lord Jesus. The kingdom of Christ. Everyone who is in Christ belongs to the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, we are embedded in this fallen world, but we are not of it. By the way, in John 16.33, Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. 
In Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you see how it's connected? To live in a fallen world is to face the tribulation. The tribulation of the fact that there is an opposing, antagonistic kingdom. And all believers who ultimately enter the consummated kingdom face tribulation on the path there. When Jesus comes, the Bible says, the kingdom has come. And then it says about believers, the kingdom is in you. And then it says, the kingdom is coming. Which is true. Yes. The kingdom has already come in Christ. We have seen it. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, the kingdom it can be described as in us and we represent the kingdom in a fallen world. And one day Christ will come and consummate His kingdom and deal with sin and rebellion fully, finally, and forever. And the kingdom will come like that as well. And until then, as we face the tribulation, we look to Jesus our King. And because of the kingdom, we can have the third thing that believers are to share together, the patient endurance. The word means perseverance. We can persevere. Why? Because we didn't save ourselves. If, we could, if it was up to us, we would damn ourselves. But God's sovereign grace is at work in the world. We didn't save ourselves. And His believers are strengthened in the kingdom. And we patiently endure the response of the Christian to the tribulation we face because of the kingdom is patient endurance. Knowing that the kingdom is coming. And all of this is real only, it says in verse 9, in Jesus. We don't talk about any of the promises of God apart from Jesus. You know why? There are no promises of God apart from Jesus. In Jesus. Apart from faith in Him, there is no hope. But he goes on to talk about the things that believers share. In other words, he's telling us at the very beginning, I am the representative for you. Let's look here together. I am exiled on the Isle of Patmos. I am facing tribulation. You face tribulation. But we have the kingdom. Patiently endure. And that's the second part of verse 9. Was on the island called Pat Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was a political outcast. The Isle of Patmos was a place that they would send political prisoners. He would not say, Caesar is Lord, and so he was sent away. And I pray that the tribe of people who will never say Caesar is Lord will only increase. We are to follow Him. Jesus alone is Lord. He says He was there because of the Word of God. The Word of God told Him He could not have divided loyalty in His worship. And the testimony of Jesus because Jesus is Lord. We have the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
first of all, note this, that John is recognizing the Lord's Day even though he's a political prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, perhaps even by himself, certainly lonely without other believers around him. The Lord's Day is Resurrection Day Worship Sunday. He is observing the Lord's Day because it's centrality in our lives. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The in the Spirit language probably is the, 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 the pointing to that He's receiving this revelation of Jesus Christ. He's receiving it on the Lord's Day. He is worshiping. He's experiencing what Jesus promised the woman at the well in John 4.23. That is worship that is in spirit and in truth. And He says, I heard a loud behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. By the way, this is a reference here to Exodus 19. I've counted over 15 allusions, uh, references to the Old Testament packed in this section. We can't unwork them all. I'll try to just mention them as we go. Just like the voice from Mount Sinai, the thunderous voice came. The voice is here. It is meant to trigger their thinking that this is the very voice of God. May be delivered through an angel, but it is God speaking. He points to here. Verse 11. Saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, these seven churches are to be encouraged by the picture of Jesus in this book. The seven churches are representative of all churches that would exist one day. He is to write it down. This is prophetic revelation. This is the Word of God that He is recording for us. And He's sending it to these actual seven churches. He wants to encourage them and strengthen them. So John and us, in Jesus. But then John begins to show us this picture that God has painted of Jesus from the colors of the Old Testament that the light of the Gospel shines upon and the movement of redemptive history here culminates on. And in verses 12-20, through 20, we want to see the picture of who Jesus is. And as we look at this picture of who Jesus is, the first thing that we see that is a grace to suffering people, people facing tribulation in the world, is that He speaks to us. Remember the very beginning of the Bible. By His authoritative and powerful Word, He speaks the worlds into existence. And now it says here, He speaks to us. Look at verse 12. Then I turn to see the voice Everything here is visual. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And uh, we'll stop right there. That, that, that part right there. He speaks. He has spoken. He speaks. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The very first thing we see about who Jesus is, is He is the one who speaks to His people. Always in the midst of fear and terror, a voice brings comfort. 
If my kids are terrified and they do not know that I am around and I call out their name, they calm down. Why? Because they trust me. How much more when we know that Jesus is the one who speaks to us. But in the second half of verse 12 and verse thir- first part of verse 13, we see that He is among us. Look with me there. I saw seven golden lampstands. We want to trace this out Old Testament. There's several places. But Zechariah 4, verses 2-10 through 10 would be a good place to go. Well, what are these seven golden lampstands? Verse 20 tells us at the end of this section, As for the mystery of the seven stars, you saw in my right hand the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now notice what he said. He turned to see the voice speaking to him. On turning, he saw the seven golden lampstands, which represents the seven churches. And then the first part of verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Daniel 7. Jesus' most frequent self-designation. Jesus keeps referring to Himself as the Son of Man. Now, we tend to read that often and wrongly think, well, He's talking about His humanity. No, that's not what this Son of Man is. Yes, He has humanity and it recognizes that. But the one in Daniel 7 whom you heard read about earlier is the one who comes riding on the clouds. The one who is given something by the Ancient of Days, God Himself, and the one it says has an everlasting kingdom. It speaks to His authority, His power, His eternality, the reality that He has a kingdom that will know no end. Now think about it. Jesus of Nazareth keeps calling Himself the Son of Man. Handful of followers. No place to lay His head. The Son of a carpenter from a nowhere town like Nazareth. Do do you see how bizarre it must have sounded? Was He mad? Well, the Son of Man would come as the suffering servant. He would receive the reward of His suffering and the rule of His kingdom according to the plan of the Ancient of Days was that He would suffer for His people and raise them up to be a part of that kingdom forever. Did you notice that the Son of Man is standing in the midst of the lampstands, which represents the churches? The Son of Man is in the midst of the churches. The cloud rider is in the midst of the churches. The one who was given His mission from the Ancient of Days, God Himself, is in the midst of the churches. The one who was given an everlasting kingdom is in the midst of the churches. What does that mean for the churches? They are a part of the everlasting kingdom no matter the tribulation they face here and now. That's a word to us. Do you receive it? 
the one who speaks to us is the Son of Man who is among us. And He is also, the second half of verse 13, our prophet, priest, and king. Look with me there. Look how the Son of Man is clothed. He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around His chest. Now, if we chased all of this out, the picture of Him drawn here is a kingly picture, but it's also a priestly picture. And since He speaks revelation, there's also a prophetic picture here. The lampstands symbolize the place of the presence of God, the temple. And here they point us to the churches where the presence of God is. And He is dressed, the Son of Man who is in our midst, in kingly garb because He is the King of kings. He speaks to us the prophetic Word that was directed toward Him and fulfilled and consummated in Him. And He is the One with an everlasting kingdom. That's why He's wearing kingly garb. Prophet, priest, king. If we take all of the key and primary rich images of the power of God and the work of God in the world, prophet, priest, and king are central. He is the prophet, priest, and king. And where is he? He's in the midst of the churches. And what has he done? He has spoken to us. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. We have the Word of the prophet. We have the mediator and sacrifice of the priest. And we have the rule of the king. All of the key lines of prophetic imagery and redemptive history lead to Jesus. And we live on this side of the cross. We are the people on whom the ends of the ages has come. We know Jesus with more clarity than Moses did. More clarity than King David did. More clarity than Aaron ever did. We are the privileged people who live at this point in history who see with greater clarity that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. No more sacrifices. No more intermediaries for us to go before God. We have what all before pointed to. The next thing we see in verses 14 through 16 is He is our glorious God. Now, I lump these together because this is a cascade of attributes. Here is the theological impressionism color, 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 all rounding out a picture of movement that centers on the light of Jesus, who is the light of the world, where we are. We are struck back at His glory, meaning His light, meaning the weight of who He is, the impact that He has on our life. Let's quickly look through this, beginning in verse 14. The hairs of His head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
Now, why would it say that? Some people say, well, white, this is purity. No, that's not what's going on here. This is quoting Daniel 7, 9, and it is describing the Ancient of Days. Now, you remember that the Son of Man was given something from the Ancient of Days, and now the Son of Man is equated with the Ancient of Days. Both those things are happening. This is a description of the Ancient of Days that is now a description of the Son of Man. So the Son of Man can be distinguished from the Ancient of Days, and yet He is one with the Ancient of Days. Exactly. He is God. The Son of God is God. To see the Son is to see the Father. Do you see how powerful this is? How glorious it is. He is our glorious God. But then it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Penetrating eyes that see all rebellion and corruption. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. But also penetrating eyes that can bless His people no matter what they face. He is one who has glorious wisdom. And then it tells us his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So his feet had gone through the fire. All of the impurity is, is pushed out and now they are completely pure and completely set. We see his glorious purity. And then it tells us his voice was like the roar of many waters. We can chase this down to the Old Testament too, if we had time, the voice of God comes like the rush of many waters, the powerful waters that flow, but waters that can destroy like in the flood, but ultimately they do the bidding of God. His voice controls all, even the elements in the world. And so we are struck with His glorious purity and His glorious sovereignty as well. Then we look at verse 16. In His right hand, that is the hand of authority, He held seven stars. You remember what that was from verse 20? Verse 20, it says, the seven stars you saw in My right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now what does that mean? I'm not sure. Some people says. It's a reference to an angel that's assigned to a particular church like a guardian angel. Some people say it represents the pastors of the churches. Some people, and probably these two ideas are combined, the seven stars is the, 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 the picture of the cosmos, the complete cosmos. He holds it in His right hand. He holds power even over the bodies in the created order. And certainly, He is the one who holds power over the churches. Certainly, He is the one who can take care of the pastors. And certainly, He may use angels to do it. You don't have to work out all the specifics. You just have to know what this is saying about His glorious sovereignty. Then notice what it says at the end of verse 16. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His Word is powerful. His Word creates. His Word, it says, is able to divide the soul of man. He comes through the power of His Word. He is the glorious warrior who 
fights on behalf of His people. When He tells the waters to wall up, they wall up. And when He tells them to close, they close. But He's also the One who comes and speaks the Word of conviction that saves and delivers His people. He is the glorious warrior who fights for His people and the glorious judge who will deal with all rebellion. And then it says at the end of verse 16, His face was like the sun shining. We can chase that out in Daniel 10 and other places too. But it's like the sun shining in full strength. The sun shining in full strength, it's not a good idea to look up and stare at it because your head will be driven away because the light is so bright you will be affected by it and have to look away. This is talking about the glorious holiness of God. If we saw the unmediated glory of God, the Bible tells us we would fall dead. Some people get a glimpse of even the mediated glory of God and they fall on their face. Now, do you see how this builds? He's our glorious God. What does He have? Glorious wisdom. Glorious purity. Glorious sovereignty. He's the glorious warrior for His people. He's the glorious judge. And He has glorious holiness. He's also our risen and reigning Lord. Now get this straight. It's not just that He will be reigning one day in the consummation of the kingdom. He is reigning. He is risen. And one day, He will consummate His kingdom and reign without the presence of sin forevermore. Look at verse 17. When I saw Him, John says, I fell at His feet as though dead. That's normal. Isaiah 6.5, Ezekiel 1.28, Daniel 8.17, Daniel 10.9, Daniel 10.11. If we look in Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 10, there's a pattern, there's a vision, there's a falling in fear, there's a strengthening by a heavenly being, and then there's further revelation from God. Now this is the consummated revelation. This is, this is where it comes. This is what we need to know. This is seeing Jesus as the One that all of that pointed to but He fell at His feet as though dead. I once heard somebody on TV and the reporter was asking, you know, if if God were here right now, what would you ask Him? And the person said, well, you know, I would tell Him what I think of things and ask Him what He thinks. I'd share my opinion and I'd listen to His. If that's what you're doing, that's not God. What, what would you do? You'd put your face in the dirt. The reality of His purity and glory and the reality of your sinfulness and your need of Him would cause you to fall down. Not because you find Him repulsive, but exactly the opposite. Because you reverence Him as glorious. Notice as it continues in verse 17. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, fear not. The assurance of God, the comfort of God because of the Gospel. Saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. God's divine eternity. Isaiah 41.4 
I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 44.6 I am the first and the last. Besides Me, there is no God. Isaiah 48.12 I am He. I am the first and I am the last. Jesus is the One that all of that was pointing us to. He is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And then notice what He says. Verse 18 And the Living One. I died and behold, look, I am alive forevermore. It's not that He died and He's alive. He died and He's alive forevermore. Why is He saying this in the midst of His churches? Churches because in Him, they will be alive forevermore. And then He says, I have the keys of, of death and Hades. Keys are keys of authority. I have the authority over death and Hades, the realm of the dead. Why? Because He was dead and now He's alive. Because He's the first and the last. He is the resurrected and reigning Lord. He is the first and the last who lives forevermore. And then John is told, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now did you catch it? All of this is on behalf of the church that He is in the midst of. Is that an encouragement to people facing the tribulation of the world? The sufferers? Revelation is calling us to center our lives on Christ. And it's always a battle. There are always things trying to move to the center and displace Christ. And so we start trying to use Him for another center. May it never be. When we do that, we bring fear in our own lives. Because only Christ is to be the center. Only Christ is to be the goal. He lays His hand on John and says, fear not. Why? Because of who He just said He is. Because of the Gospel. And by extension, He is laying it on the seven churches. And by extension, His hand is upon us in the tribulation of this world. And He says, fear not. And He has the authority to say it because of who He is. Well, the next question is obvious. What are you fearing? What is it? What are you fearing? What are you fearing? He speaks to us. He is among us. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He's our glorious God who has wisdom, purity, sovereignty. He is our warrior who fights for us. He's the judge that judges all rebellion. He's the Holy One. He is the risen and reigning Lord. What are you fearing? Center your life with this amazing painting filled with the color of Old Testament imagery bearing the light of the Gospel. And the movement has come all the way to you 
so you can see the goal of this entire painting. Jesus. 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 Let's pray.